virtual. So the room was empty, and in fact, they, the back, the people in the sound booth were so busy doing their stuff, they weren't even paying attention to me. So the cameras are way over there, so I felt like I was just doing this. So I had a picture of my brother, because he was preaching that same week in Colorado, and so I put a picture of him on the front row, and so I got to preach to him, and he sent me a picture later that same day that he had done the same thing. He had a picture of me on the front row. So we have each other, and it's still stuck in my Bible. I don't think I'm ever going to get rid of it, because it's just this reminder of that. But, um, well, my name's Steve. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Um, the other pastors that we have are Pastor David Shade and Pastor Israel Gomez, and the reason I bring that up is in a little bit we're going to talk about elders, and so I want you to know who we are. But I teach fifth grade um, when I'm not here doing this. I teach fifth grade in your Belinda. Um, and at the end of every year, a school year, uh, element, high school teachers, and if you've ever been to school, you kind of know this process, but there are yearbooks produced, and those yearbooks are given to the kids, and that's the most exciting thing the last two weeks of school. Nothing ever matters. The teachers cannot get anything done because those yearbooks are coming. When are the yearbooks coming? Are the yearbooks here? Are they going to be here soon? When are they going to be coming? And so they get there, and they want each other to sign them and to write these powerful messages to one another as a fifth grade mind can do. And they bring it to you, your, their learned teacher, and they want you to sign it with this inspiration and this power that you have instilled in them all this knowledge throughout this time. And now they are ready for you to just dump it all in that book. And I don't know what to say because I don't have anything. And so my trick is they say to me, Mr. Zitlow, would you sign my yearbook? And I will then become very literal. And I find the largest empty page, and I take my biggest Sharpie, and I write my signature across that. Now, it's become a thing at my school where that's, it's valued, it's not an insult, but again, being one of the only guy teachers on campus, it's expected me to do something jerky like that. But when I get to the end of the year, that's what I do. I sign them. I don't know what to say. Well, this year was weird. This year, I lost three months with my kids. And when I, when I, I call them my kids because they're my kids. I, I spent more time with them than most of their parents. They come from broken homes. Some of them don't have dads. Some of them I've had for the last two years because I taught fourth grade and then I moved them up with me. Um, some of them I taught their brothers and sisters. And some of them I've even taught their parents. Yes, I am that old that I've taught some of my kids' parents. And it was weird. We got to the end of the year and the yearbook committee came to us and they said, you know, as fifth grade teachers, can you write something that we can publish in the yearbook? Okay, and I'm already processing this because I'm going to send a note home, um, a letter home when they come to pick up all their stuff, and I want to put something in there. And how do I sum up all the things that we've done? Not the math and the reading and the history, but the things where we've talked about, like how to be a citizen, how to be a kind person, how to care for one another, how to deal with discipline, and how to deal with one another when you don't get along, and all of those kinds of perseverance things. How do you put that in a couple sentences, in a few paragraphs? Peter's there right now. We are in 1 Peter, and we're now finally, I've been walking us through this when I get my chance to speak, and we're in 1 Peter 5. We're at the end of the letter, and Peter is there. Peter is at the end of this time. He's communicating with these churches that are in modern-day Turkey, and he's been sending them, he's sending them this letter to, to encourage and exhort them because they are currently and will be going through persecution. They will be suffering for their faith. And so he's writing to them to let them know that there are others that are there, that who they are in Christ, and that the suffering is, is for a short time. And there's all these things that he's covered. And now we're at the end of the letter, and he needs to say something. And so he's kind of in that same spot, but he actually has better things to say than a signature across the page. He has words for them. And we need to remember who Peter is. Um, 
This is the same Peter that was called as a disciple. He had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. Uh, this is the, the same Peter who would oftentimes put his foot in his mouth. Um, he was commended by Jesus one moment and then rebuked by him another. Uh, he denied Jesus. He watched his Savior suffer. He was present and able to speak to the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus told him to care for and feed the church. This is a, Jesus, this is a Peter that loves Jesus' church. And so when he sends this letter to them, when he sends it, this is from a man who cares and loves the church. He's been encouraging them. He's been um, exhorting believers in those churches to stand firm and be humble in the midst of persecution. And that means he's also encouraging us to do the same. And again, I want to remind you, this is, this is persecution for the faith, not because you're a jerk for Jesus, not because of anything else. We're talking about because you stand up and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord for the faith. We know there was persecution in the early church. We read about it, and I'm not going to get into it. We've covered that before. But it wasn't just then. It's actually happening now. I'm not going to get into the statistics. If you, you can look at almost, you can look it up. It's amazing. The, the global statistics of persecution, by number, it is one of the most intense times of persecution ever. Over 75% of the world is in some form of persecution for their faith. And we live, in, we live in a pretty good place. We live in Orange County, California, even Los Angeles, even in America. Persecution doesn't look like it does where you're risking your life. We, we talked about it in another sermon that persecution could look like maybe losing a friendship group, maybe not getting a promotion, um, maybe not getting a job, alienating some people that you've talked to, being looked at a little differently. It isn't to the place where you will be pulled into the street necessarily and stoned. It isn't to the place where they're going to burn your house down. We're meeting on Sunday at a, in, a, in a building right now. No one is coming up and putting torches in here. No one's closing the doors and attacking us. We, we don't have it as bad, but it is getting worse. And you know, you've seen the news. You know the things that are going on that more and more Christianity is not as favored anymore in this nation. But we have to remember we were never promised that anywhere in the scriptures that that would be the case. So we're at the end of this short five-chapter letter. And he sent me another message. Um, and we are at this short thing, and we don't know, he doesn't, Peter doesn't know if he's going to see these people again. He doesn't know if he's going to see their faces again. He doesn't know um, if he's going to get a chance to speak to them again. So he is finally exhorting them. And some of the things that we're going to cover today, you're going to have seen before in some of the passages we've covered in 1 Peter 5. In 1 Peter, I mean. So, well, I'd like you guys to stand with me. We're going to show reverence to the scripture. We're going to stand as we read this. We stand for our favorite football team, our favorite sports team, our favorite um, musicians. We stand for a lot of things. Let's stand for the word. And I'm going to read the entire section of our passage today. First Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe, yourself, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a while, God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, the faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I come before you as uh, someone who needs to know this stuff and learn it as much as anyone else. I pray that you would use this time to glorify yourself, that we would um, be convicted of those areas that we need to change, that we'd be encouraged in those areas that we need to be encouraged of. And I pray that we would rely on your holy word as we um, walk through this time that we have. Be with us during this short time as we're together. In your name we pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. As you noticed, as we read through this, the word humble came up a few times. Um, and so we're going to look at this passage through the, the lens of humility. And if you look at our society, it's not a society that values humility. We say we do. We say, oh, it's good to be humble. But if you look at the people we admire, the politicians, the sports stars, the movie stars, the celebrities, we see a lot of pride and not a lot of humility. When we look at... Um, the things we say to our kids, we don't, we don't really offer a lot of asking them to be humble. Humble is kind of a weakness we see in our culture. It's not, in fact, it's resisted in a lot of ways. But the humility is the mindset of a true servant. And so when we look at our passage today, we're going to look at it through the lens of humility. Uh, Jerry Root, I don't know if you guys have ever read anything by him. He's a um, professor of evangelism at Wheaton College, big uh, C.S. Lewis geek. So if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you would enjoy him. If not, I apologize, you don't like him. But Jerry Root said this in regards to something he had read from C.S. Lewis. He said that honesty is another word for humility. And I had to wrestle with that for a little bit. Honesty is another word for humility. But when we think about it, it makes a lot of sense. In order to be humble, we need to be honest with ourselves of who we are. We need to know our identity. And if we look at it in our Christian setting, we need to know who we are as a Christian. I am a sinner. Right rebellion was saved. Not by anything I did. I was dead in sin when Jesus rescued me. I owe everything to him. When I see myself in light of that, I can see myself as a true servant. But the minute I take my eyes off my identity and, and I'm not honest with myself, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I do deserve that. I am better than that. I am better than them. Man, am I better than them. It's really easy to shift it when you look at someone else, huh? But honesty is the same word as humility when you think about it that way. So we're going to look at humble elders, a humble church, and humble Christians. So let's get into this. Uh, Pastor David was trying to keep me humble today, and he said to me, um, 30 minutes is a, is a window of time. And if you've ever been in, when I preach, I, that seems like a very uh, lofty goal, so I will do my best to keep it to 30 minutes. So let's 
now so that Pastor David doesn't glare at me or send up the two-minute warning sign. <laughs> All right, so in uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, he starts out in verse 1 with so. That's as far as we've gotten, and I'm going to stop again. So, likewise, we have to look back at what was just said. We see that he says, so I exhort the elders among you. In looking back into chapter 4, we see that he just talked to the Christians about suffering well. And if we look at the entire book, we see in light of everything that he's talked to up now, he is now turning his attention to the elders and he's speaking to the elders of the church. Those are the leaders of the church that God has placed there. And he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now I'm going to go through this elder section really quick. Um, a couple weeks ago, Josh Costa did a sermon on in Acts, but he reflected quickly in this little section, and I thought he did an awesome job. So if you haven't heard it yet, go back and check out his little sermon. Little sermon. I didn't mean to demean you in that. You are just as tall as anyone, okay? <laughs> Wasn't trying to keep you humble with insults. I apologize. Please accept my apology. Wow, that was really bad. That was, I, wow. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Thanks. Thank you for helping me with that. But anyways, he covered this really well, so go back and, and check that out. But Peter's right here laying down his credentials. He says, elders among you as a fellow elder. I'm, a, I'm an elder as well. He, you'll find out later in the book that he's an elder in Rome, that we see that he's talking to us from there. He was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. We know that Peter was with Christ at that time and saw him suffer. And that he said he is, as well as he's a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So he says, this is who I am. So when I speak to you, you have this authority in me. And then he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God. And we've seen references to sheep and flocks as we've gone by in the rest of this book. My wife grew up and she raised, um, she raised sheep. And so I've known her for a few years and I've heard some of those stories and I've read some of the stories about sheep. And sheep are not wise animals. Sheep are helpless animals. I believe she, several times she's referred to them as dumb animals. They, ha they have no natural defense. There's nothing that naturally they can protect themselves with. They, they are, um, so they, they're weak to predators, so they stay together in a herd. They stay, is it a herd? It's a herd. They stay together in a herd. And so if one goes somewhere, they all go. So they easily follow. Um, they are not discerning in what they eat. They will eat something poisonous as indiscriminately as they would eat something that was good for them. They would drink something that's bad for them just as much as they would drink something that's good for them. And they need someone to care for them. They have, um, their fleece grows, and it creates something called lanolin, which I learned is a waterproof agent, but it also doesn't allow things to escape. So if they're laying down in bugs and dirt and things start crawling in underneath, it stays under there. They don't clean themselves. They need something to help them clean. They need the, someone to shear them down and keep them. So they need care. And when we think about Christians as we're called sheep or the flock, it really makes sense. We don't always wisely uh, choose what we intake. Um, we, be it food, be it uh, wisdom and advice, we don't always wisely take that in. We tend to follow people that we, just without any thought, well, we're good followers. We don't, we don't clean ourselves because only Christ can clean us. We need someone that feeds us. And so he's talking to the elders of the church, and he's like, you are leading. You are shepherds of this. But he calls it the flock of God. This is not their church. 
these elders, it's not their church. And this is what Josh referred to when he, when he was preaching. He, it's called the flock of God. So they are, they are leading God's church. That's a humbling place to be, to lead God's church. It's as if someone were to loan you the most expensive car you've ever had. You are definitely going to be nervous when you take it out, if you take it out at all. You're going to park it in a big, wide spot. You're going to make sure that it's cleaned, that it has fuel, that it's been taken care of. You're going to be very careful because it doesn't belong to you. You did not purchase it. Same idea with these leaders he's talking to. This, these are not your sheep. These are God's sheep that I am letting you have authority over. Care for them. And then he gives a list that explains what he wants them to do. And again, this is not an exhaustive list of how to care for. This is not an exhaustive study on elders. But he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. So you, sh- you're not, you shouldn't be forced as an elder to lead. You should desire to, and you should be willing to do that. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You're not doing this for the money. You're doing this because you love God and you've been called to this. And not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Lately, there's a lot of stories coming out, and many of us have been in churches where we have seen what domineering leadership looks like. It's not healthy. It's, it's not the way that people grow, and people generally don't follow a leader that is domineering in that way. They may fear a leader like that, but they don't follow a leader like that. He says, be an example. So as an elder, we should be the people that you look to as the church and say, well, that's someone that I can follow. That's someone who's doing this the way the Bible says it. Now, in no way are elders called to do it perfectly. In fact, we mess up just like everyone else messes up. But you should expect your elders, when they mess up, to repent, to apologize, and to move forward. This is what we're asking our elders to do, is to be examples. So for us, the elders here, and those of you who aspire to be elders, you should be an example to the church. You should be the people that they look to. And he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he again reminds us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. And that if you are faithful to him, he will reward you. But let's go on, because again, I wanted to keep that brief. We as elders, um, it's not our church. We are to humbly lead his flock. We're to be an example. And for the church, rest in the knowledge that this isn't my church, that this isn't David's church, that this isn't Israel's church, but this is God's church. And that as weird and obnoxious as some of us can be, that God has placed us here for some strange reason because he sees something in us to lead. So pray for us, please. Especially when you think there's something wrong with us or that you don't get along with us. Pray for us. Okay, so let's move on. Likewise, so we are going to go, just like I said before, we're going to look back. So as the, as the leaders of the church are, are submitting and are humbly submitting to the chief shepherd, Jesus, the church should follow as well. They should submit to their leadership. He says in verse um, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, this refers to all to be subject to the elders. You'll see it in other passages. Um, in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers, that you, that you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So we see this in other places that um, it's not just in this one portion where the younger, it's the church should submit to the leadership of the church. But they did, he does talk about being younger, and usually the younger men are the hotheads that are usually rebelling, but there are a lot of us who, as older people, can be hotheads and can rebel as well. He's reminding us to be subject to the elders, and, and how do we do that? We clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. That means to tie on humility, to put it on like a servant would. It's very humbling to know that someone else is in authority over you. In any role that you're in, it's humbling to understand that and to submit to them. Submitting is to line yourself underneath them. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough place to be, but if we um, understand, if we understand that God has placed those in authority over us, we can trust in him that they can lead us and we can submit to them. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. When you hear this, this phrase, humble yourself under his mighty hand, it means to live in complete dependence of his mercy and grace. We have just been told that we are submitting to our leadership, but then he says to humble ourselves to one another, and then he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you. This idea of um, submitting at that time, remember, they are, being per- they are the persecuted church. They are being come, they're, they're, people are coming after them because of what they believe. And they're saying, and, and Peter is saying right here, you need to trust in the mighty hand of God, and you need to humble yourself in this way because in submitting at this time, God will exalt you in the end. There's a proper time. Uh, in Luke 14, 11, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's protecting us. He's warning us. Don't be proud. God will lift you up when it is time to be lifted up. So what do we do with that? We humbly submit to the elders of the church as they submit to the chief sh- shepherd, Jesus. We humble ourselves to our brothers and sisters. That's a tough one to do because we don't always agree with one another. How do we submit and, and be humble to one another? Because we do. We, um, we're, we're asked in several other passages to, be hum, to humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters. But I don't always agree with you politically. I, always, I tend to look down on you for your thoughts. How do I humble myself there? It's understanding that I am under Christ and his mighty hand, how I'm able to humble you. And I can't do that on my own if I'm not thinking that way. And then we get to chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, where we deal with humble Christians. We talk to the humility. It takes humility to lead God's church. It takes humility to follow the leaders God has placed over his church. And it takes humility as a believer to understand that we are not ultimately in control of where and how persecution will occur or when it will stop. We only know we're supposed to be faithful. So look at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded and watchful. Now, we had just talked about it, and I I forgot to mention it. It says that, we are to cast our anxieties on him. When we are under persecution, when we are suffering, we have a lot of fear. What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my income? What's going to happen to my home? I don't understand exactly what's going to go on. What's going to happen to my life? 
I may not even have a life after I stand firm and say that I believe in Jesus. What's going to happen? There's a lot of fear in that that I cast on him. So he says, be sober-minded. That means get your priorities in line. Be focused on the important thing and be watchful. The other word for watchful is vigilant. Be ever aware. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Your adversary, that is your opponent. Your opponent, the one who's coming after you, the devil, which another word for that would be slanderer or liar, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire. That's, that's different than a lot of us tend to think. We tend to think that, yeah, uh, Satan's going to sneak up and get us. The, the demons will, demonically will sneak up and get us. He's saying right here, I am openly telling you that he is roaring. He is terrorizing you. And as a church and believers, we tend to go one of two ways. We go to the place where we dismiss all spirituality. Like, okay, really? There's, there's demons. There's, there's Satan. We're not, you know, I'm sure it was in the Bible, but I'm not going to worry about it. Or we can go to the other side where we obsess on it and we get deeply into it and everything is demonic and everything is this and we start to study it and we lose sight of the truth, which is right in the middle. Satan would, yes, Satan would desire to see you destroyed. Um, if we look at Ephesians 6, 12, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic forces, this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil or hell, evil in he the heavenly places. It is real. So don't dismiss the fact that there is that. But understand on the other side that we are given the information that Christ is in charge. Jesus has defeated him on the cross, that this is a lion with a leash, that he is dangerous, and we are to avoid him, and we are given instruction to do that, but that we are protected. We have to be in between those two, or we are easily distracted. He says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, so resist him. Okay, so how do I resist him? There's three things. First, it says firm in your faith. Firm in your faith, the truth that is given to you in Scripture. We are to be firm in our understanding of this. This is why he's encouraging these elders to lead well and to feed the sheep well with truth because truth is the only opposition to the lies. If the devil is a liar and a slanderer, the opposition to that is getting the truth. And your leaders need to be feeding you the healthy truth of his word. So be firm in the fact that this is the true word of God. That's one way we can resist. The next way, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being all evidenced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone. This is happening to all of those who stand in the name of Christ. That they are being opposed by Satan. That they are being persecuted. They are suffering for what they believe. You're not alone. God did not leave you. He didn't forsake you. He is not picking on you. This is a part of the Christian walk. We've seen it in, if you go back and you read 1 Peter, you're going to see that it says you will suffer, not you may suffer. And as a side note, like I said before, if suffering and persecution haven't happened, it's time to examine your life. What, is that, what does that mean for me? I've never been persecuted for my faith. Have you ever been bold? Have you ever said what's true? Have you ever stood up against evil? Have you claimed the name of Jesus? Not in an obnoxious way, in a truthful way. 
and no persecution. You may want to check your heart on that. So you're not, you need to stay tr- firm in your faith. So stay with the truth. Be feeding yourself with the truth. Know that you're not alone, that Christians around the world are suffering just like Jesus did. And then finally, we need to believe, chapter, uh, verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says, after you suffered a little while, this goes back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he talks about a little while. We talk about that life is a vapor, that it's this very short amount of time. We tend to obsess about the fact that this is eternity, that you only live once, so you're afraid of missing anything. You're afraid of missing out because this is all we have, and so you're easily distracted by all those things that you still need to do. But this isn't it. This is temporary. This is the steam off of your coffee when it disappears. This is how short this is. And it says, you're going to suffer a little while. That may mean that you're suffering your entire life. That's a little while. Be encouraged by this because the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. Remember, a little while contrasted with eternal glory. Yeah, you're going to suffer for a little tiny bit, but you will have eternal glory. You have an inheritance that's secured for you that is unable to be destroyed for eternity. We are to believe in that. And then this next part is so awesome. You're suffering. You've suffered for your faith. And who is going to come along and encourage you? Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He cares for you enough that he will be the one that will come and love you. He will restore you. He will remind you of who you are and place you where you need to be. And then Peter just erupts at that point in worship. He can't control himself anymore. And in verse 11, he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That word dominion, dominate. I mean, he just talked about there's this lion that's roaring, that's trying to devour you. And then he, he finishes it up with worship saying, God is dominating and will be dominating forever and ever. Amen. When we acknowledge that, when we go through the process of our liturgy here at church, it's to bring us to the reminder of the truth. The truth is that he is an eternal God who has rescued us as sinners and has promised us eternity, has, sees us as righteous as he sees Jesus as believers. And that in that, we know that we are loved. Regardless of what's going on to us, regardless of our suffering and our persecution, we are loved to that degree. And so it leads us to this place of worship, and that's what we try to do with our liturgy, is bring us to a reminder through the truths of Scripture into a place of worship where we should be spending most of our time. We should spend most of our time reflecting on that and understanding that that is a God worth worshiping. Um, I've said it before, a friend of mine, he used to say that we should spend our time glancing at earth and gazing at heaven. And when he said that, he's talking about we sh- our focus should be on God and his holiness rather than the things of life that we get caught up on. Yes, there are things that are important here, but it is only for a little bit of time. And we should then erupt into worship just like Peter did. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he finishes up with just a few thoughts 
Um, he says, by Silvanus. That's Silas, for those of you who've read. That's Silas that was Paul's bud that hung out with him. He says, by Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Silas is probably dictating this, and he's going to take it to the letter out, and he's going to carry it to them. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, that this word of God is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I'm going to come back to that. She who is at Babylon, which is a reference, like a code word for, for Rome. Um, Peter probably did not want this manuscript to come back and cause even more persecution for the church at Rome. So he would use a phrase that a lot of them did, um, calling it Babylon. So she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So the church in Rome is sending you greetings as well. So does Mark, my son. Mark is the same Mark who... Um, was with Paul and then left Paul, then came back in Acts with Paul and is now with Peter and he calls him his son. Greet one another with the kiss of love if you've quarantined for 14 days. And then peace to all of you who are in Christ. He ends this letter on persecution with peace. Like rest in the knowledge that this is our God who loves us and will restore you. And if you are faithful, he is faithful. I told you I'd come back to that phrase, stand firm, because as we go through the book, and we went through the book this whole time, and it's been fun to kind of walk through this personally, um, growing in my understanding of persecution and um, repenting of those areas where I've become weak and not firm, and I've uh, tended to, to need to grow. If nothing else, I have grown in this time. Um, he had this theme of standing firm, so I want to finish by kind of going back really quick again, just a few seconds, and walk us through the idea of standing firm as we see it through the book. So we stand firm in the true grace of God as we suffer simply because we are Christians. We stand firm knowing that while the world may take everything from us, it cannot take our glorious identity or our imperishable future because we are elect exiles, set apart by the Holy Spirit for the salvation accomplished by Christ and now on our way home. That's in chapter one, in the first two verses. Keep going in chapter 1. We stand firm knowing that even though the world may kill us, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. Continuing in chapter 1, we stand firm knowing that God does not waste our suffering. He intends it to purify our faith in order that we may obtain our future salvation when Christ is revealed. In chapter 2, we stand firm knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ traveled the road marked with righteous suffering and blazed a path for us to follow. Chapter 3, we stand firm knowing that if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed and will be exalted to glory as Christ was. In chapter 4, we stand firm knowing that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we are proven to be Christians. That's that badge of Christianity that you're asking about. Am I a Christian? There it is. And finally, as we looked at it today, we stand firm by humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand knowing that he will exalt us. I want to finish my sermon. Instead of a prayer, I'm going to read out of the Valley of Vision. And there's a prayer called Humiliation. And I find that uh, in light of the, this topic of, of humility, that this is a fitting end um, to pray with at this. So it should be up on the screen in a moment. You can follow along. The Valley of Vision can tend to get wordy, so it's nice to be able to follow along on a screen. So I'm going to read this. Sovereign Lord, when clouds of darkness, atheism, and unbelief come to me, 
I see thy purpose of love in withdrawing the spirit that I might prize him more, in chastening me for my confidence in past successes, that my wound of secret godlessness might be cured. Help me to humble myself before thee by seeing the vanity of honor as a conceit of men's minds, as standing between me and thee, by seeing that thy will must, be, must alone be done as much as denying as in giving spiritual enjoyments, by seeing that my heart is nothing but evil, mind, mouth, life void of thee, by seeing that sin and Satan are allowed proper in me that I might know my sin, be humbled and gain strength thereby, by seeing that unbelief shuts thee from me so that I sense not thy majesty, power, mercy, or love, then possess me, for thou only art good and worthy. Thou dost not play in convincing me of sin. Satan did not play in tempting me to it. I do not play when I sink in deep mire, for sin is no game, no toy, no bauble. Let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. When I am afraid of evils to come, comfort me by showing me that in myself I am a dying, condemned wretch, but that in Christ I am reconciled, made alive, and satisfied, that I am feeble and unable to do any good, but that in him I can do all things, that what I now have in Christ is, is mine in part, but shortly I will have it perfectly in heaven. Amen.